Well, it's great, great to be here. It's great to see such a, a large crowd. I was, uh, I was at a meeting in Westminster this week, and someone started off as a big audience in front. He said, uh, "I'm reminded of the uh, Ronald Reagan." Um, introductory comment. It's great to see such a dense crowd. Uh, so, <laughs> but anyway, I don't, no, you, you cannot say that in terms of the collective memory of this group of people here this morning, but, uh, this afternoon. But I, I apologise for not being here this morning. We had a big voter registration thing that I couldn't get out of, um, and it would have been fantastic just to listen to the contributions because it's a fantastic agenda, Jim Roger. Um, now, I think uh, I'm going to speak. Um, and try and talk about some of the interrelationships between the Oxford School, if you want, um, and public policy, especially around debates in and around uh, Labour over the last 20 years or so. Um, and I suppose the obvious point that I want to make um, is that, uh, that on the face of it, the apparently unfashionable issues that are being kicked around today and it's often assumed that had their high watermark I suppose post 64 to 70 um, actually um, and you know the dominance of market triumphalism or what we call neoclassicism or neoliberalism or whatever um, suggest that this, this is this is more of a historic exercise whereas I want to suggest actually it's conditioned much more uh, of the debate around labour and, and labour politically and labour markets than you otherwise assume in terms of a lot of the current comment commentary about where labour is and the post-97 elections and post-2010 debates and the like. So I want to just suggest that the Oxford School, if you want, is a much more enduring contribution to thinking in and around the labour movement and especially the Labour Party than some might otherwise assume in terms of seeing it as an exercise often in historiography and, and the like. So that's basically what I want to suggest. I'll give you an example. I was at a, um, the IPPR, the Institute of Public Policy Research, has these lunchtime seminars on, on a Thursday from time to time, and they, they kick around individual figures in recent Labour history. And Ben Jackson, who's, uh, uh, I think he's at University College, uh, Oxford, um, he uh, gave a, con a contribution around um, pre-distribution, which is obviously a, a jargon-loaded term, but it focused on the contribution of Alan Flanders. And this was only a couple of years ago. And it was really interesting how amongst some younger people in the interface of academia and policy, public policy making and around Labour, that Flanders is such an interesting uh, contribution to make um, with a focus on institution building and you know, uh, productive capacity and all of that. So th th also that debate around hacker and globalisation is very much informed, I would suggest, um, in terms of some of the Oxford-based thinking around uh, labour markets, human capital and, and the like. So um, I should add, though, because I sort of come from Warwick, I'm fairly biased in, in, in my assessment of these things and, and the relative contribution, so bear that in mind and what I'm going to say. Um, I would also suggest, post-97, that the, if you want the Warwick or the Oxford tradition, has a much more important contribution than a lot of people assume when they uh, analyse more recent political history, especially the contributions in around the post-97 period uh, in the framing of the Fairness at Work agenda, what became the Employment Relations Act, um, in terms of ob most obviously the institution building around what George is here, around the uh, low pay commission and the national minimum wage, uh, the regulation of working time, some of the debates around education and vocational training, some of the contributions around the union modernisation fund and like a lot of it was informed by some of the thinking that comes out of this Oxford school if you want. Um, I would say, however, that, that that 
those contributions did offer diminishing returns after about 2001. So the real story is the contribution made in that period, 97 to 2001. And there is a, I think there's a really interesting debate about whether the decline of Labour post-2001 is partly linked to the declining significance of some of these literatures or contributions in and around that Labour government. Um, it saw a re-emergence post-2010, but um, then that is, a, that is a question of the path not taken, if you want, in terms of the policy review and policy making in and around Labour 2010 to 2015. Uh, and that partly, I would suggest, accounts for what we can call Corbynism, really, which is a symptom of that declining intellectual rigour in and around labour and energy and vitality in terms of the public policy making in it. So I sort of want to move through some of those contours over the next uh, 20, 25 minutes or whatever and then just crack it open, really. So the question is how that bridge in terms of this tradition into some of these debates in and around labour. Now, um, basically, the, the, the significance and decline partly account for... Uh, the significance of Labour revisionism in and around the leadership of the party, um, some of the institutional concerns, but also a retreat in and from Labour from social democracy itself, actually. I think that is really the story here in terms of the last couple of years, or the last couple of months, actually, more than the last couple of years. Um, but we can sort of get stuck into that in a minute. Now, um, in terms of my shorthand, and uh, I'm sure this was sort of... Um, if I'd been here this morning, I'd have developed this much more. When I talk about the Oxford or Warwick tradition, I assume and think about a tradition that stayed faithful to the notion of labour as an economic and social category in terms of how you analyse uh, the political and economic formation and the connections between labour and value. So we're not just talking about utility as a source of value and the notion of partnership between capital and labour and the notion of institutional development and the notion of voice, agency and industrial democracy and the role of politics you want as an act of brokerage within some of those different <coughs> elements uh, in terms of the political formation. Um, however, the notion of this being an unfashionable tradition is partly because we've seen almost over the last couple of decades the assumption that almost anything apart from labor creates value actually you can talk about technology you can talk about utility education networks rather than skilled work upheld by non-market institutions which i think is a hallmark of this warwick or oxford tradition um, in terms of schematically trying to sort of chop this up a bit I would uh, just work on three basic frameworks. One, let's call it this Oxford or Warwick tradition, which is, is closely associated with labour revisionism, um, the work of the TUC itself, um, especially the GMB, um, Basnet, John Edmonds, Larry Whitty, people like that in terms of their uh, thinking. It's sort of the assumption is that in the 80s that it was... Uh, <coughs> Elements within the party became more driven by more conflictual models, um, especially across the left of the party. Um, you see that, obviously, now in terms of the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so the, the second model is more conflictual, and the third one is more uh, market-based or neoclassical in its orientation, which did inform parts of the new Labour administration. So I would just basically use schematically these three models, the institutional or Oxford model, the sort of more conflictual model and the market-based model to look at some of the tributaries in and around Labour thinking over the last couple of years. And the interface between these three different approaches, I think, partly accounts for uh, 
the relative successes or not in and around Labour post Kinnock, really. Even though a lot of, a lot of the thing did inform the policy review under Kinnock, but I think that's going a bit too far back, and we're really talking about post 97 and post 2010. So, if you look at the 1997 to 2001 period, um, actually, you could look at it before 1997, actually, um, in Labour in opposition from about, well, you could go back to post 92. Um, some of the contributions with, with Blunkett when he was in the shadow employment team, with uh, Ian McCartney, whose uh, significance in this space is, is often underemphasised, but he was absolutely pivotal in terms of the relative successes of the labour market interventions within labour post-97. Um, obviously the role of John Monks in this period. Um, and elements within Downing Street, the significance of the backbench group of trade union MPs in the House of Commons, which uh, acted as a sort of corrective in terms of some of the debates from time to time when the, when the negotiations around the policy framework were being worked through. Um, obviously, Bill McCarthy. I, don't, I was trying to think sort of when he came off Labour's front bench, but I couldn't couldn't remember when that was. Um, but. Before 97, I remember uh, he, he was into Downing Street a few times when we were talking about the fairness of work legislation and some of the best meetings I was talking to Willie about earlier on were, were when I was sort of just listening to him and Bill Wedderburn go at it a few times in the state rooms and that was, that was something to witness actually in terms of uh, what the government should have been doing. Um, but that was, and, and that had informed a lot of thinking pre-97, especially around the work around low pay and John Smith as well actually. Um, the leadership. Now, in terms of the new Labour element, I mean, I, my own take on this is I blame Bill Clinton for a lot of the problems uh, in terms of the post-97, because basically what happened was, um, especially around Labour's shadow treasury team, there was uh, an assumption, and the sort of model went something like this. Within the context of globalisation, uh, the real disposal incomes of workers across Western market economies are in decline. So the role of the state is to engineer growth through a compact with finance capital, um, and then to redistribute at the back end in terms of remedial negative income taxes. We'll call them tax credits. So that was the way you supplemented the disposable income of uh, the working classes through a specific approach to statecraft and uh, fiscal remedies rather than go into some more fundamental questions of system redesign. So there was always this tension, if you want, between... And that was, that was informed an awful lot of the new Labour thinking economically. So there was always, from the outset, quite a tension between more of the institution building system design elements within the policy making and that treasury thinking which was dominated by this sort of ameliorative role of mildly redistributive back-end fiscal transfers. And that sort of tension um, played out all the time. George, George had a hotter seat than I in some of this, but there, there was always that tension, I, I felt, around labour market policy. And it remained unresolved. Um, so you'd see... Um, and th there was a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that model was pretty c solid. I mean, you had 60 quarters of growth, you know, you, you, I mean, 13 years of it in effect, a lot of it on labour watch. Um, so the, the model... Um, was quite a, quite a uh, the way that that informed the thinking. I don't think can be uh, underemphasised, overemphasised. For example, tensions around the minimum wage partly can be seen through that prism. 
actually. And Tony Blair was brilliant, actually, in trying to hold together the whole low-pay commission with George because that was the space where a lot of these tensions around policy making and economics was played out in terms of basic uh, material justice in terms of uh, the minimum wage and there were I mean I'm not t- telling tales out still but there were attempts to construct minority positions and not wreck the low pay commission I wouldn't suggest that but there there were there was a sort of uh, an ongoing sort of brittleness around the politics of it um, played out partly because there were different sort of traditions <coughs> in terms of what they thought the role of a modern social democratic framework was. was. Um, some more interested in institutional design, others in terms of back-end fiscal remedies. Um, and that, I think, accounted for, for... And so, actually, with hindsight, you could say that the two more enduring institutions that came out of that period, early years intervention or children's centres and the Low Pay Commission, um, both of which were actually predated new labor um, but they were the subject for quite intense debate around the role of modern social democracy and what that entailed in terms of uh, interventions and actually they're probably the two most resilient institutions that came out of that period i think um now the um the playing out of those two traditions let's call it the institutional tradition and the the new labor economic model treasury driven accounted for a lot of the battles around the employment relations act what we, what merged out of the fairness at work white paper the uh, regulation of working time the social chapter and actually the uh, well, Rogers here actually he was right in the, the middle of this the the debates around what would come through the European route rather than the domestic route and some uh, tensions around that especially around uh, issues of industrial democracy um, and I suppose I would see the ninety seven two thousand one period as a bit of a score draw between those two different traditions if you want the institutional tradition emerging out of some of the sort of Oxford or Warwick thinking, and uh, some of the more the Clintonite, Larry Summers sort of economic framework. Um, the problem is, for me, the post-2001, it was more of a victory to the economic economists within that, or the Clinton economics, rather than the period 1997 to 2001, setting the scene, or putting the footings in the ground to develop that more institutional approach post-2001. And I think there was very little, even though there was a commitment to reconsider the Employment Relations Act, that was a synthetic process, really. I don't know what Sarah thinks about this, but I, I do think that that was, that was more apparent than real in terms of really reviewing the operation of the trade union recognition procedures. Um, very little came through in terms of labour market reform 2001, and I think the best example of how this the institutionalists, if you want, had lost out was the debate around agency workers by the, but was that 2006, 2007, I guess, whereby nothing was coming through in terms of labour market regulation by then, or institution building, or, or trying to build collective bargaining as an act of public policy, which was one of the objectives in the post-97 period, ran out of juice, ran out of road, and it was going nowhere, really, um, by that period. And I think that 
that reflects the growing sort of muscular approach of the Treasury within a lot of these conversations. It reflects a lot of the Blair-Brown tensions, which dominated the second period of the Labour government, um, the drive-by shootings, the gang warfare, all of that was sort of, it was sort of at the expense of some of the the, the, the more rigorous public policy making around the institution building around the world of work. Um, and I think that is a great tragedy, actually. So let's call that the first tragic development in this was the way that post-2001 this space contracted. The walls were coming in, the ceiling was coming down. And um, I think it's probably best reflected with John Monks going to Europe because that, that spoke volumes about the inability to persuade the next phase of it, which was the whole social partnership model that he had been pioneering and nurturing in the TUC, the strategy was basically to get the footings in the ground post-1997 around recognition procedures and then try and develop that into a broader approach to the economy around social partnership but to confront the, the, the enduring productivity problems of the British economy. And that never flew, really, because of the increasing dominance and traction of this Treasury thinking imported from North America. That's how I sort of look at it and I think that accounts for a lot of the uh, the uh, the uh, battles in and around the labour market space and it also I suppose was informed by some legacy issues of uh, of uh, post uh, the the 74-79 Labour government I suppose and and the the assumption that one of the whole, one of the the signature elements of labour modernisation was its distance from the trade union movement so that politically played in as well. But I would say the dominant element was the, the, the economic thinking that under, underscored, was imported from North America around, and you saw a growing emphasis on, well, obviously, tax credit bills, which is the subject of quite a bit of political contestation now, literally this week. Um, that was the, the best example of what we thought was the best approach to questions of distributive justice were questions of back-end fiscal transfer rather than re-engineering of the economy. And that lost that argument, basically. Post-2001, that lost um, the dominance, increasing dominance of the Treasury thinking within that. That had huge consequences for the sub subsequent decade and has huge consequences for today, actually, because um, you saw the centre emptying out. You saw increasingly a, a new generation of more militant trade union leadership develop, or notionally more militant, but, um, taking over some of the, the, the key lead, lead unions. Um, and that was reflective of the failures of, of the institution builders, if you want, to get the whip hand in terms of the space in and around Labour. Um, so that, that increasing militancy, if you want, a more conflict-driven model that was developed, um, was because of the failures of us to lock in uh, 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 a more sort of uh, institutionally focused approach to social democracy, especially in an economic policy from 97 to 2001. Um, that centre empties out the Blair-Brown battles intensify, a new generation of trade union leadership um, getting less and less out of the Labour government, so the politics of it become more and more charged. Um, and I would argue that also counts for a, a lack of economic resilience when the, when the music stops in 2008 as well, in terms of the we hadn't changed the essential architecture of British capitalism, nor had we really sought to because of the notion of back-end redistributive justice engineered by 
redistribution the products of growth, which was premised on a compact with finance capital. Um, when that hits the buffers, we were actually left um, far more vulnerable than other Western market economies, which had focused on more long-term institution building in terms of creating a more resilient social democracy or British capitalism or Western. So, um, so the Clinton model actually intensified the post-September 2008 shakedown in terms of the uh, economic consequences. Now, to move to the 2010 period, as the growth, as you've lost the growth, you've lost the assumption that underpinned that whole of that economic thinking, especially post-21, which was all about sharing the proceeds of that growth. Now, if that goes, you have to subsequently rethink your whole approach to it again. And Miliband tried to do that 2010 to 2012 by focusing in on some more uh, fundamental questions of system redesign, um, which, uh, which were sort of characterised as pre-distribution, um, borrowing from the hacker phrase. But I thought opened up quite an interesting space to rethink our approach and have an economic conversation, the likes of which we hadn't had from the mid-90s, really. Um, it was sort of tripped up by some of the language around predators and predatory capitalism and, and, and a lack of coalition building around good businesses and, and employers. Um, but I think there was a space there that he was trying to nurture which allowed for a return to some of these issues around uh, redesigning modern British capitalism in the wake of 2008. Um, transport, infrastructure, supply side reform, devolution, regional rebalancing um, and a return to labour market reform in terms of um, extending collective bargaining, uh, question of the equivalent of Schedule 11 or what might be a, a new model to extend collective bargain terms and conditions over into unorganised sectors, public service reform, uh, there was a, a, and technological change actually as a driver to public service reform. There was, there was a rich theme there of public policy of which I think you can see, again, a return to some institutional concerns around labour market reform, the role of trade unions in terms of re-engineering modern British capitalism, a, a move away from some that conflict-driven model that had come to dominate some of the thinking uh, by the pre-crash period, um, and quite a, an interesting space for intellectual renewal of the party, which has its antecedents in Oxford, Warwick and the like in terms of labour market reform. Here's the problem, though. Miliband then won after, you remember the Omni Shambles budget 2012? That gave Labour an unearned poll lead, which acted as to de incentivise that sort of heavy lifting that you, opposition gives you. So he took the foot off the pedal because the basic assumption went something like this, right? There's two great movements in this parliament, empirically, amongst the electorate. One is the movement of liberals away from the coalition that plays back toward Labour, disproportionately breaks towards Labour. The other is the move away from UKIP voters away from the Tory government and that breaks disproportionately against our opponents. So we're on the right side of these two great movements within this parliament. Shorthand this became known as a 35% strategy where you gained the electorate right, and you could get over the line without doing the heavy lifting required of opposition. So the genius of 
George Osborne is not in his northern powerhouse or trying to return the Labour the Tories into the Workers' Party. It's by mismanaging the budget of 2012 to such a great extent that it meant that Labour wasted two or three years the back end of the last parliament in terms of a reset of its intellectual and political character. And that was, that was gone. Um, and so one minute past ten... The exit, the, the, the exit poll comes out to demonstrate empirically, actually, and a lot of research subsequently has demonstrated that these two movements of Liberal voters away from the coalition and UKIP voters away from the Tories didn't break anywhere near the assumption that underpinned our general strategy. So there's a long winding way to say there was a space 2012, 2010 to 2012, and there was, I think, some interesting stuff put in place, but it was subsequently parked. Best example, actually, is Miliband made a speech around One Nation Labour, which was trying to trying to rethink uh, a national popular strategy, if you want. Uh, but that then got collapsed, or uh, by a year later, it was instrumentalised into a simple cash transactions, cost of living conversation. And within that journey tells you the retreat from a, a much more ambitious intellectual, ideological renewal and political strategy into one that just basically uh, returned to simple money transfers as, as the currency of politics. It instrumentalised or tr became caught a transactional politics at the expense of a deeper uh, economic and social project, if you want. Um, and that is, I think, the second tragedy of all this. It's because there was a space there um, that was, uh, that was uh, emptied out, which could have returned to and began to think through some more fundamental questions of uh, labour market reform, questions of labour itself um, as an economic and social category beyond a political one. Um, but I'm afraid it then collapsed into this uh, gaming of the electorate, this 35% strategy which uh, was at the expense of the heavy lifting opposition requires because 2010 election had been arguably the third great defeat in Labour Labour history you could say it was actually you could say that 2010 was the worst defeat since 1918 um, it was worse than 83 worse than 1931 um, so that would necessitate, you would assume, a period of renewal, reflection and serious intellectual endeavour to rebuild uh, an ideological project, a political project and an organisation one. Um, two years in, it looked like he was un that was underway, but then they hit the rewind button from about April 2012. And I think that accounts for how this group of ideas they associate with Warwick or Oxford or whatever had some traction, but then... Um, declined in significance at the back end of the last parliament in terms of Labour's opposition thinking. We tried to introduce a lot of it in Labour's um, policy review. John Monks again did a commission for us around um, uh, Labour market policy and Labour law. Um, 